Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good, Andrew. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Yes, it's a beautiful day in D.C. Happy Halloween. We're recording on the afternoon of Halloween. Uh, are your kids too old for trick-or-treating at this point? Yeah, they went to a party Friday night in costume, but today I think is... Uh just school and work and tomorrow is the deadline for early applications for college so they're a little bit busy i know it's crazy uh but mother-in-law wants some candy so we're working on that (laughs) do you have any she's big on halloween candy we might though wait till tomorrow when it's half price do you have a costume for tashi that's the most important question we'll ask Uh, i tried i tried the last three years and he eats it every time so no (laughs) Um, okay alas we might um, say we might send mother-in-law to your house are you you gonna be having candy Maybe we'll come by. We have candy. Yeah, stop All by. Right, We've we got will, candy we'll ready by. for you. Uh, my son is dressed as a chicken right now, but we also have an astronaut costume, which he'll probably pivot to later because I expect he'll throw up on the chicken costume. But... All part of the fun oh, here. F- <laughs> fashion <laughs> icon. He gets to have two costumes. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, we are just incredibly pathetic first-time parents. Uh, but <laughs> we are going to begin today with the biggest news in China right now. Uh, late last week, news broke that retired premier and three-term standing committee member Li Keqiang died early Friday morning in Shanghai of a heart attack. He was 68 years old, and as you wrote on Friday, his death is shocking given his relative youth and the quality of health care that retired leaders of his level enjoy. So before we get into what we've seen in the wake of his passing, can you give people a brief overview of who Lee was and what his legacy was as premier, just to put some of this in context for everybody? Uh, so he was premier for uh, 10 years from 2013 to 2023. Uh, and he was a member of the standing committee for three terms starting in 2007. Uh, he was uh, effectively, I think, a protege of Hu Jintao, the previous general secretary. In 2006 7, it was either going to be Li Keqiang or Xi Jinping, were the likely next general secretary five years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Xi Jinping ended up ranking ahead of Li Keqiang. So that was became clear that she was most likely to be the person. Um, he came up through the uh, Communist Youth League apparatus, which is where uh, Hu Jintao, the previous general secretary, came up through as well. Uh, she has since effectively gutted the Communist Youth League as a political force uh, okay. for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so Li Keqiang was, you know, 10 years as premier. He was viewed by, I think, some in the bureaucracy and some outside the bureaucracy and certainly in foreign circles as more open-minded than uh, Xi Jinping was. And so uh, true or not, I mean, there you always sort of, people project their hopes on top leaders, even if mm-hmm. they don't know really what they think. I Anyone mean, he was who's a, not in power is potentially He was a very good the, Communist Party member. It, it was, I think he had a, a different view of sort of opening to the rest of the world, but so, so I think in his death, there's been lots of commentary and talk about, oh, if only it had been him and not Xi Jinping, China would be different. And that's, I think that's true um, because they're different people. But you have to be careful about taking that too far, that somehow it would be this sort of Utopian, more liberal. Yeah. Ut- yeah. Versus, you know, would it be more like Hu Jintao's China, which had a whole set of its own problems? Yeah. Um, and, and so I think his his death also, though, the other thing that, you know, and, and just to jump in, uh, it's actually not the biggest news in China. Uh, it, it was it was it was the day he died. It was shocking. And then since then, it's been sort of relegated. You know, his official obituary was on page one of the People's Daily. But then since then, it's been relegated to sort of further down in the news and in the, in the CCTV broadcast or on mm. um, People's Daily. Uh, there's going to be a cremation service for him on Thursday the 2nd. Uh, there will be no national sort of national state funeral like there was for General Secretary John Zemin last December. Um, and so I think at this point, there'll be the news about it when all the leaders go to his cremation service on Thursday. And then after that, he'll just will sort of not be talked about, so, at least in the official media. Question for you on that point. Um, to the extent that the reaction is becoming more muted, is that essentially because the party is pressing the mute button and tamping down the outpouring of grief? Or is it just sort of the natural cycle of things? 
So what you see is you saw you saw lots of people, uh, I think, in the thousands who were dropping off uh, flowers and or notes at his childhood home in Anhui, uh, other places he worked, including in Zhengzhou and Hunan. He was party secretary at Zhengzhou for several years. But the, generally, I think the party, they allow some venting, some, mm-hmm. you know, you saw also Zhang Zemin where, they, where there is a sort of a brief period where people within certain parameters can express their sorrow, can mourn. Uh, and then after, usually after like two or three days, they start wrapping it up. Yeah. You know, s- sending in some police, but also like urban enforcement workers, uh, neighborhood watch folks to just sort of restore order uh, and slowly end the physical mourning. Online, some stuff has been allowed. There's been a fair amount of censoring as well. Uh, the censorship will probably increase. And then, you know, by next week, it, they'll likely be just sort of people will have moved on. I mean, you saw this. I mean, they have a playbook for this kind of stuff. And they just went through it with Jung Zemin in, uh, uh, I think he died the last day of November last year. And then his mm-hmm. state funeral was in the first week of December. So they know how to do this, right? And so they also, I think, understand they have to allow some space for uh, people to mourn. But again, you have to keep it contained. And you know, one of the things you saw soon after his death was some commentary that, oh, this will be like 1989. People are really unhappy. You know, 1989, 89, those protests were really triggered by the death of former Premier and General Secretary uh, Hu Yaobang, who died apparently of a heart attack after being criticized or having an argument with officials. Uh, and, you know, that then triggered the outpouring of mourning that then became a sort of snowballed into the protest movement, sorry, that lasted into June. Uh, you know, that, uh, again, I think there's a fair amount of projecting there that there, there just is not any reason to think that Li Keqiang's death would trigger that kind of reaction. Uh, the situation is very different. He's a very different person. He, you know, Hu Yaobang had actually, one of the reasons he'd lost his job in, I think it was 80, uh, early 87 as general secretary was that he um, he was criticized for not properly handling, handling some student protests in I think late 86, early 87. Uh, so students were very, you know, angry about that. They, there was just a lot of things, you know, they're only, they're basically barely 12 years out, out of the end of the Cultural Revolution. China was a very, very different place. Um, and, you know, and again, now you fast forward, you you have a much more uh, efficient and hardened security service. You have much more ability to surveil and to uh, have real insight into public opinion and what people are thinking in real time. Uh, they went through this with Jiang Zemin and his death and, and mourning, uh, what, less Last than a year, year ago. Yeah. Right. So my question then, how much of that is a direct consequence of what we saw with Hu Yaobang and, and 1989 and the sequence that played out there? Like, because it is striking as a Westerner to see this outpouring of grief and then a couple days later see, you know, police show up at sites of mourning to shoo people away and say, no, 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 this isn't happening anymore. Um, how much of that insecurity stems from 1989 or, it, you know, insecurity is my word. I'm sure that's not how she and the party would describe it, but it does look peculiar from afar. Like even President Biden offered condolences on the passing of Lee Kachang and the PRC omitted that from the readout of a meeting between President Biden and Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Um, so it's all a, a bit strange. But as you said, like it's clearly a playbook. There's no question that this is all being stage managed, as it were. But I'm just wondering what the roots of that management are. Well, I think you, at least for the Communist Party, uh, mourning for senior leaders has a history that predates even the the protests that sp- sprung up around Hu Yaobang's death in 1989. Premier Zhou Enlai, who died in 1976, I think he died January, and then in April over the Qingming Festival, there was big protest on Tiananmen Square, which was effectively, the protest was about Morning, Joe online, but it was really about criticizing the gang, criticizing the gang of four, criticizing the state of the China and the leadership. And so I think that, uh, and just as you know, Hu Yaobang's death was used not just to mourn him, but to criticize the government, criticize the party. Uh, you know, they, they there's always been a concern, at least since the late seventies, that these kind of a, a public, um, public expressions of mourning will be used for 
uh, a broader agenda or a broader criticism of the government. Uh, they just have a lot more capacity now. When you when you talk about 1989, of course, that was a very fundamental, very a, very much a sort of a fundamental lesson for the party about how to keep things, you know, how to the risks of allowing things to spiral out of control. Then, of course, a few months later, you had you know the the the, the beginning of the fall of the USSR, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's one of those. I think really key points in the Communist Party history where, you know, it's sort of a never again moment. And so mm-hmm. um, they have spent a lot of time studying what happened, how to avoid it, how to harden the security services, how to build up surveillance. And of course, all of that has accelerated under Xi Jinping. It's also accelerated because just the technology is so much more capable and right. so much cheaper. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And just to give people a little bit more detail on what it's looked like over the past few days, um, The Financial Times writes, the rare public outburst of grief for Lee, who was largely sidelined by Xi while in office, presents a delicate situation for China's ruling Communist Party as it contends with a lagging economic recovery and geopolitical tensions, analysts said. Quote, we have a lot of other leaders who are corrupt, but he wasn't one of them, said one woman who attended the same school as Lee and had joined a crowd of mourners watched over by rows of guards placing flowers around the home where Lee spent part of his childhood. Uh, He cared for the poorest of society, she added, wiping back tears. And you mentioned some of the censorship we've seen online. Um, A number of phrases have been censored uh, on Chinese social media. One was the one who deserves to die did not. Uh, Another was good people do not live long. And then uh, the Yangtze River and Yellow River do not flow backward. So a a number of sort of vague coded phrases that people have been using to express their grief. And uh, the the latter phrase there, the Yangtze River and Yellow River do not flow backward, was a famous phrase used by Lee to emphasize that China will not abandon the reform and open up policy, which many in China believe is not Xi's vision for the country. And all of this was helpfully highlighted by Wen Hao on Twitter will put a link in the show notes to a, a useful thread that he put together. Um, so, yeah, it, it puts she and the party in a delicate position, but it doesn't sound like there's any real threat of instability in the wake of all this. Uh, it seems unlikely. I mean, I think that there's also, as always, conspiracy theories. And so you do hear people sort of questioning the the official story that he had a heart attack while swimming, given the uh, just sort of the, you know, he he's effectively has his own, you know, guard team with him at all times and the quality of the medical care. Uh, there's uh, at least one open letter from a retired cadre circulating that, that at calling for an investigation about how this could really have happened. Um, hmm. You know, one of the conspiracy theories you see certainly in, I think, some overseas dissident circles is that somehow he was killed by C because he was a rival. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, I, again, it's a black box. So sure. Is it possible? Uh, yeah. Is it likely? I just don't see why it, it just, you know, because there's this idea that, Oh, Lee, remember last year before the 25th Congress, there was this whole idea being pushed that Lee Kachang was rising and he was making a play to sort of, yeah. you know, to sort of take over from Xi Jinping. And, um, it, it seems to have been made up if not by in whole cloth, at least by his own supporters leaking to various outlets, mm-hmm. uh, obviously didn't happen. Uh, now, of course, the idea was, well, he could come back and lead and, and you know, push out she. And again, unlikely, it, but in a black box or, or when you're trying to understand something's in a black box, people can just make stuff up and, cons- you know, conspiracy theories are just going to run rampant. And y- you can say it doesn't seem likely, but, you know, no one's going to say, well, how do you know? You can't know. So so anyway, it's it's just like. It's it's just a, it's a very toxic information environment. I think we've we've made that point before. I think. And you mentioned that Lee ascended under the tutelage of Hu Jintao, and I I was thinking back to Hu Jintao at Twentieth Party Congress and the visual we got there. Did we ever get any more clarity on what exactly what happened, happened there? No. Okay. Yeah. No. no. Yeah. There there's still plenty of uh, hypotheses, but no one knows for sure. Or well, some people do, but no one outside knows for sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of Li Keqiang's legacy, I mean, he he said a lot of the right things in terms of reform. Uh, his record in terms of actual delivery is not great. I mean, they're, they're still working through lots of issues that he talked about for years to try and fix. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that his fault? Hard to say. I mean, she, 
she was, I think, uh, made it so that Lika Chang was one of the least powerful premieres in a, <laughs> in a long time. Right. What what does a premiere typically do functionally in the economy? Well, they're in charge of the they're they're like in charge of the economy. I mean, they're they're they rank below the general secretary. They're usually number two in the party hierarchy, or sometimes they're number three. Uh, but they they among you know they run the they're in charge of the the cabinet, and they're supposed to you know implement the policies for the economy. Right. Uh, and you know one of the things that she did, of course, in his ten years, is he's he's sort of brought the party back into everything, and so by bringing the party back and everything, he's weakened the state institutions, and so that was also weakening, um, weakening Lee's Lee Kachan himself as, as premier, okay. right? Um, you know, and before before he went on the standing committee, he served a term as as party secretary in Hunan, and he oversaw a really horrible um, uh, blood selling scandal that uh, led to a massive outbreak of AIDS. Where people would would sell, you know, they go donate blood, they sell their blood because they were it was it was a relatively easy way to make money. Even they, people were very poor, but they just ended up leading to contaminating the blood supply, and so there was oh. a massive surge in AIDS cases. Um, didn't hurt his political career, right. uh, you know. And then of course he went up to be premier, and so I think that you know we'll see over time. People maybe will get some better appra- appraisals of his legacy. Um, he he was operating under a lot of constraints, especially the last five years under Xi Jinping. Uh, but it's um, you know some people say oh he's a failure. I, you know he would just he, he it, it's a it's a mixed record, mm-hmm. but it's also I think an impossible job. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you know that was one of the thoughts I had watching people express their grief the past week or so. Like we had. Yacho Wong, a research director at Freedom House, uh, tweeted, the mass mourning of Li Keqiang is the mourning of a China that could have been. It is not only to show sympathy for a leader who had tried but failed to make China better, but also to express discontent with Xi and a sense of despair about China's future. Um, the second half of that makes sense to me and, and aligns with some of what we were discussing last week in terms of discontent with Xi and a sense of despair among some in China. But I also found myself wondering whether the legacy as a reformer on the Lee side of things was being overstated to some degree in in the same way that like disdain for certain American leaders can lead us to airbrush away some of the inconvenient facts about their predecessors and and yearn for yeah. days that were never quite as great as we remember them being. No, um, I think I think I think that's a good way. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think we just won't know. You can't know what China would be like if Li Keqiang had become general secretary. Yeah, um, you know there are a lot of reasons to believe it would be a little. It would be a little. It wouldn't be like the way she has it. But at the same time, the China that who, that Xi Jinping inherited from Hu Jintao was a mess. We talked about this last week, and we were talking about the the New Yorker article. I mean, there were a lot of things going wrong in China that needed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think there were broadly speaking two camps about how to fix it. And Xi's camp obviously won out. And the question is, was Lee, was Lee really opposed to what she wanted to do? Or was he just sort of more of a get along, go along kind of party guy? Right. He certainly seemed to be a party loyalist through and through. And um, that informed a lot of the decision making that happened under Xi. Um, he wasn't like stepping out of line. And maybe that's really the only choice he had. But in any event, um, Yes, it's been eye-opening to watch the reactions over the last couple of days. And you posted a video that was then immediately uh, deleted from YouTube. So the censorship regime is in full swing right now. Well, that one, I mean, that one was interesting. That video was actually someone had had, who was either, I think, adjacent to the hospital where Lee Kachan was taken um, to try to be saved after because he he had had this event at a basically resort in Shanghai and mm. uh, you know where the leaders could stay it's open to the public too but part of it is closed for leaders and then he, he, he had something happen at the pool as, as the story goes and then I think they just took him to the closest hospital even if not the best hospital in Shanghai and there was someone was video posted video from uh, looked like a building next to the hospital of sort of you don't actually see Li Kachan, but you see all the different, you know, police there and then the the hearse to take the body away. And um, and I think actually that was probably taken down because it was probably pretty easy to identify who posted that. You can get in a lot of trouble. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, because it was on YouTube. I don't I mean, I don't think that, you know, that's yeah. not. Um, so so that could I, I watched it. And I was like, OK, this is really interesting. But like 
I hope this person knows what they're doing because it really wouldn't be given the angles. It really wouldn't be that hard to map the angles to the security cameras and figure out probably who took this or yeah, even look at cell sense. phones in that area and look at who took these videos and photos. That makes sense. And yes, the PRC's reach does not extend to YouTube. I just remember. Well, it, a different discussion, but it, it does in the sense that there there have been cases where you effectively you have uh, organized um complaint attacks if there's a specific term for it where but where this swarm a certain post or that video, definitely happens on twitter yeah good point yeah where where they sort of overwhelm the automated complaint system uh reporting system and then the, the sort of the system automatically blocks a video or blocks an account because it's getting so many complaints without actually going to see sort of are these legitimate complaints versus are these sort of some sort of a coordinated attack to shut down someone's voice all part of the experience under she these days. <laughs> yeah. uh, but do you have any? So uh, speaking of party leadership, uh, the other story domestically, can you explain what a party plenum is and why it's notable that there is still no announcement of a third party plenum here? So after the party Congress, you know, we had the 20th party Congress last October, um, Ben they every year and they're mandated every calendar year you're supposed to hold the plenum which is a meeting of the central committee the 200 and change people who are the central committee members and and then you don't have another party congress until the 21st but you'll have these annual plenums plenums everyone pronounce it uh and again they're mandated to hold one every calendar year usually what happens is the first plenum is actually when the at the party congress right after the party Congress. Uh, and then the second plenum is early in the following year, right before the two sessions, the meeting of the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and then usually, uh, I think I went back since the 80s, you would then have a third plenum sometime in the fall of that same year. So the first full year after a party Congress, you would usually have two plenums. Okay. Uh, and you know, last, after the 19th party Congress, they had both the second and third plenum in the first quarter. Um, and, and the reason was they had a third plenum was sort of appeared to be kind of rushed, but it was really about approving the term limit changes for Xi Jinping that then went to the National People's Congress where it was approved by the state as well. And then there wasn't a fourth plenum until the following year in the fall. Um, and so this year, there had been an expectation that there would be a third plenum this fall with the focus on the economy and that it was needed because it was going to be one of the ways that the party would set the agenda, help set the agenda for what was needed to really fix the economy. Right. This is where policy is set. Well, at the very at the very high level, yes. This is this is this, this and, and then usually what happens is you know they they have publicly for the most part publicly announced Politburo meetings. Usually what happens is you'll get an announcement of the dates for the plenum. Uh, sometimes at the month before, sometimes a couple weeks before. Um, this time, we just had the October monthly Politburo meeting was made public last week, I think last Friday, and there was no match of the date. So then looking at the calendar, it looks unlikely it'll be held in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in December, usually in the probably the second week of December, you have the Central Economic Work Conference, which sets the uh, economic work agenda for the following year. Uh, it it certainly I mean it's possible they could squeeze a plenum in I mean they can but it's also increasingly likely that for whatever reason and we don't know and of course there will be speculation because of what we talked about earlier with sort of the black box and speculation right um, it looks more likely that it's going to be sometime next year okay um, you know in terms of speculation I have also heard oh some people say well you know. She just doesn't even need to call them. But I think that's wrong. That's I think what I was wondering, honestly. I, I, no, like, I think it, it, they, the party, he, it, it's, it's a, it has to be in a calendar year, once a calendar year. They've already had this one. There's no, like from, from in terms of the logic of the system, you can't say, oh, it's been delayed or, oh, there's a problem because they've actually fulfilled what they needed to do in terms of having the plenum this year by having the second plenum. Um, okay. But from perspective of, I think, investors and kind of understand the economy and the direction, uh, it, it just is one of those things where it's, it's a bit of a head scratcher, which is we were used to this tradition or this precedent. She broke it at the 19th Party Congress. Now, I guess maybe this is just the new norm under the Sierra. That, that, that's quite possible, too. Yeah, well. Um, but it's just one of those things like that just looks like, again, for investors, especially, I think, when they're sort of trying to understand what the heck is going on and, you know, how do you, how do you deploy capital or how do you put capital at risk in China? 
it's just more opacity that makes it, and I think increases the uncertainty. It increases so the hesitation to maybe put more money to work in China or leave your money there. Oh, no, absolutely. And to that end, uh, the Financial Times, their calculations based on Chinese Commerce Ministry data compiled by Wind show that foreign direct investment fell 34% year over year this September, the biggest decline since monthly figures became available in 2014. So uh, all of this is part of that story. And what I was going to say earlier is that this episode of Sharp China is going to be publicly available. First episode of the month. Every first episode of the month is free. And a theme on Sharp China for anyone who's new here is that under Xi, the black box is getting blacker with each passing year. It's always been something of a black box in terms of party leadership. But man, oh, man, it's more opaque than ever. Yeah, and that's by, de- and that's by design. Um, wh- one thing about that FDI number, I mean, you've got a couple, I- I've seen at least two different analyst reports who are arguing that a lot of it has to do with the fact that companies, especially foreign enterprises, they, they, you know, they can either leave their money, leave their, their earnings in China, or they can take them out and get better returns on them because the yields are so much higher in the U.S. And so mm. the argument was it's not necessarily sort of running away from China, capital fleeing, but it's just chasing better yields. And But they're still, I, I, my view is, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, that would make sense. I'm sure people aren't running away from China, but I do think that well, some are, people are getting more yet. conservative. Yeah, uh, because yes. some of this is becoming harder and harder to ignore. Um, as far as clarity is concerned, do we have clarity on how plenum and or plenum is actually pronounced, is co- like correctly pronounced? I've heard it pronounced both ways. Um, do you have a preference? I don't. I think okay. I use it interchangeably. Okay. Um, we'll use it interchangeably. We can ask Ben. <laughs> Ben's usually good at pronunciation. It's right? a specialty. Absolutely. <laughs> Something that Sharp Tech has made it, it made into an art form, I would say. Um All right. Well, we mentioned earlier that Wang Yi was in Washington, D.C. He may still be in Washington, D.C., but he met with President Biden. No, he's back in he's back in Beijing. He just met with uh, uh, Macron's top foreign policy advisor. He's a busy guy. Yeah, Yeah, he's a busy guy. Uh, Globe traveler, the uh, foreign minister. He met with President Biden, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, as well as members of the business and strategic communities. Uh, the road from Bali to San Francisco next month appears clear for Xi, you wrote on Monday. Wang Yi used the phrase, proceed from the Xi-Biden-Bali summit toward a San Francisco summit. So it looks increasingly clear that that meeting is going to happen. Did you have mm-hmm. any takeaways from the Wang Yi meetings this past week? Was there anything that surprised you? I was reading along and was sort of overwhelmed by the blizzard of cliches in the readouts. No, I mean, I think it went according to plan. They're, they're, they're sort of, we've seen this gradual warming, sort of reestablishment of these various channels of discussion. I didn't see anything in that um, sort of the readout of the meetings or anything that I've heard that uh, were surprising. Um, you know, and the fact that sort of Wang Yi effectively acknowledges that that's, you know, she's coming in a couple of weeks. It's, really, it's a couple of weeks, yeah. not even. So uh, they got to hurry up. It, it, you know, I, again, I don't think anyone in the government is surprised. Um, it has been pretty clear for a while that they've been working towards this. And, you know, the Chinese just they're not going to it just it's, makes more sense for them to wait to to, to announce it. Um, so uh, it, and then the question really, though, is, uh, you know, it, are we back to where is the U.S. and China? Are they back to where it was, where they were, say, around Bali last year? And then, of course, there was supposed to be this sort of progression of uh, conversations and sort of warming of ties that then were derailed by the um, uh, by the civilian air, uh, airship um, mm. taking weather readings, um, or was. Uh, um, and so, so the question is, are we really just back to there or have they actually made progress beyond that? And I think we're probably maybe back to where they were last November or even a little bit behind. I, I don't believe that either side sees what's going on as much more than just sort of a tactical stabilization. I think there are reasons for both sides to want to have the relationship calm down. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that there's nothing, at least that's that's comes out of Wang Yi's meeting and the readouts that would indicate any sort of um, so fundamental shifts on fundamental issues that would change the structural challenges in the relationship. And in fact, I think when you look at um, 
some of the some of the recent actions, you know, the the the, way the Biden administration's updating of the semiconductor controls to be at least on AI much tighter, mm-hmm. uh, which made the, the Chinese had been told they were coming, but it still made them, I think, very upset as you, as you can imagine. Uh, what's going on in South China Sea around the Philippines, where of course the Chinese view is that the Philippines would only be doing this because the U.S. is telling to and, and backing them, right? Um, and and so if the U.S. weren't intervening and weren't weren't stirring up trouble, then you know the Philippines would just sort of sit quietly by and not do anything. Uh, you had that intercept last. It was after our um, our we recorded last week, but where you had a, a PLA fighter uh, come within ten feet of a B fifty two at night. Mm. Um, flying over the South China Sea, which um, it's you know dangerous. the Pentagon called it unsafe, which is I think really the highest level of of risk. And is someone explained to me later that's the sort of there's risky, but then when it's really risky, they call it unsafe. Um, wow. It was also described to me as an extraordinarily close call. Uh, and so I think there are just uh, lots of things that could could really fly out of control quickly. Uh, even though they're talking. And that's why in some ways it's probably good. It is good that they're having these kinds of discussions. But I will say, as we've been talking over the last few months, when we talk about sort of after the balloon, the re-engagement, you know, the whole argument of, well, why are they even talking versus, well, they should talk, but, you know, don't just talk for talking's sake. I think, you know, you look at what the Biden administration has done. I mean, stuff like they've been engaging, they sent several cabinet secretaries you know, Wang Yi's visit was effectively a reciprocal visit for Blinken's back in June that, of course, was delayed because Wang Yi's successor and predecessor is no longer... We don't know where he's he no is. no longer visible. <laughs> we, we don't know where he is, right? I don't want to say disappear. He's he's sort of effectively evaporated. Yep. Undone by an extramarital affair and or espionage scandal. Or, we, or, we, or we don't along. know. Um, but, but then, you know, you've got... Uh, the Biden administration moved forward, even though it was basically a month away from this. The hoped-for meeting was with with uh, Xi in San Francisco. Moved forward with this upgrading of the you know, updating and upgrading of the semiconductor uh, export controls, which are, I think pretty material, at least mm-hmm. around again around AI. Um, and so you're you're not seeing sort of the Biden administration just saying, "Oh my God, we'll do anything. Just talk to us." Right? I think they're they're saying, you know, we want we need to talk. We need to have these engagements but we're going to continue to move forward on things that matter. I mean, this, the flip side is this is not the time for the U.S.-China relationship, not that it ever is, but especially now for that relationship to spiral out of control, given what's going on in Ukraine, given what's going on in the Middle East. Right. Um, you know, the U.S. at least, I think, is, if you're the Biden administration, I think the last thing you want is another crisis. Uh, if you're Xi Jinping, maybe, maybe at some point it looks more like an opportunity than, than a risk. But I think right now they still, given the state, especially of you know, the, the PRC economy, it's better, I think, for, uh, I think how she sees it, it's better to have stabilization relationship because that'll help, at least won't make the problems worse. Yeah, well, and in the, the near term, the challenge inherent to trying to make the problems better uh, on the US side, if you're setting policy, the challenge was made clear in your Monday newsletter. There were just a couple different headlines in the Global Times that I found interesting. So one was, China, U.S. should eliminate interference, overcome obstacles, enhance consensus for realizing summit in San Francisco. And then if China is forced to resolve the Taiwan question through the use of force, it will be a legitimate and just war. That is from a lieutenant general. And then senior China-Russia military officials meet to jointly cope with challenges to maintain global stability. So it's like there's a ceiling on anything that can be accomplished if the Taiwan question is still totally unresolved and is currently in sort of an unsatisfactory place with both sides suspicious of the intentions of the other. Um, Although this is probably the best case scenario, honestly, in terms of what could happen next. But then also the China-Russia partnership that has emerged over the past couple of years and deepened is going to be really concerning moving forward. And so it's good to put a floor on the on the relationship, but it's also important to sort of manage expectations on what might actually be achieved in San Francisco other than just getting in front of one another and preventing things from getting worse or spiraling out of control in the short term. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think also, I mean, Taiwan is likely to get worse just because there's the election uh, in January, and right now the uh, the polls aren't great for him. But right now the leader is the vice president candidate for the DPP, um, who you know the Chinese side really doesn't want to have become president. Right, um, and I think they're pushing 
they're, they're hopeful or they're trying to get the U.S. to put its thumb on the scales towards away from William Lai towards the other candidates. The U.S. isn't going to do that. Um, but I think if if Lai wins in January, I think, you know, certainly what I've been hearing is very quickly you're going to see some actions, not military, but uh, all sorts of actions to put pressure on Taiwan pretty much right after he's elected. Uh, and then that will lead to, um, again, that'll just... Back just and another, forth tension. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, you mentioned the uh, civilian airship. There was one note we got uh, from the Ministry of State Security on WeChat. They posted this week and said that they investigated over 3,000 overseas-related meteorological stations across 20 provinces, saying they posed risks and threats to national security. And it reminded me of the unmanned civilian airship. And I wonder how much the PRC is projecting here in terms of the way other countries use weather data um, for surveillance purposes. But I feel like on a weekly basis, we need to check in with the Ministry of State Security on WeChat. Well, they, they, have, they, have, they have multiple posts a week now. I think, I think that one was interesting. It's basically they, um, you know, the meteorological information, weather data is, is, is a national security issue is what they're saying. And it, you know, that shouldn't be going to foreigners. Yeah. Um, so interesting on a couple of points. One is, well, I mean, the flip side, of course, is anyone can buy meteorological data about the U.S. or Europe or other countries. And so it's, it's asymmetrical in terms of access to data. Mm-hmm. Um, two, what are they worried about? Are they worried about, you know, that, this, that the U.S. or someone is going to be collecting this data and using, I mean, are they, are they looking at this data as useful for, say, fighting a war, invading, sending missiles, sending rockets? Right. Um, and three, if collecting transmitting meteorological data is a national security risk, then aren't they admitting that the unmanned civilian airship primarily for meteorological purpose was actually violating U.S. national security since it would have been violating PRC national security if it had flown over the PRC? Yeah, I'm not prepared to unpack that tautology on this podcast, (laughs) but um, I couldn't help but crack a smile. Uh, The MSS explanation on WeChat was... Meteorological data constitutes an essential component of data security and resource security. It is closely linked to national food and ecological security, climate change, along with public interest. I can see the argument. I can see the argument, but then this, the unmanned civilian airship was flying over America's, you know, breadbasket. Right, exactly. You know, checking so in on our maybe our it wasn't grain about storage. the nuclear <laughs> weapons site that that was circled over. Maybe it was about the cropland. You know I what, mean, Bill? I'm, sorry, I don't, I'm being facetious, but why not? Both? At some point. It, when you when you're so when everything is now security, then everything is now security, and you can't you can't sort of say it's now security for us, but not for you. It doesn't work that way. Right. That's why I mention it. It's another data point to keep in mind anytime the PRC accuses other countries, namely the United States, of overstretching the concept of national security. Everything is national security to the MSS, as they are happy to share with you on WeChat on a weekly basis. Um, Anyways, the other U.S.-China news that is big, and um, I have to say, one of the simple joys of reading cynicism is a couple times a week, the header images you put on your newsletters are just hysterical to me. Um, Whenever possible, you manage to have some fun with it. And on Monday, we got an image of Gavin Newsom, governor of California, Bowling over an unsuspecting that was Chinese a child, foul, wasn't it? I mean, that was if you ever wanted to be called for charging, that was charging. Well, and <laughs> you're the, the image, basketball guy. I know this is sort of a sharp China sports detour, a little <laughs> earlier in the episode than normal. But the image you posted had a broadcast cry on that read "Newsom plows into kid." <laughs> I just cracked up late Monday night reading it. Um, I want to go to an email from a listener named Unbalanced. Wait, one, one, one point about that, though, that is interesting, just about that. So it's not only a kid. So he was taken to uh, a, a elementary school for the kids of the party elite. You know, Xi Jinping had gone and inspected that oh, school wow. in May. An important and made, kid. And made this... And may, yeah, so we don't know whose kid it was, right? I mean, it, may, it does not look like it was a diplomatic incident, but the, the kids at this Ewing school are, are not sort of... Um, like they're they're the elite of the elite and generally speaking right not who you want to be bowling and then over it looked like he was okay they were laughing afterwards as newsom was hugging him i mean it was a, it was a little awkward but it seemed 
like everyone's okay. I don't know. Uh, listen, a little awkward and a little strange is how I would describe the entire Gavin Newsom tour through China. Um, <laughs> and I want to go to this email we got at the beginning of last week. This is from Unbalanced. He says, I recently came across a news article indicating that California Governor Gavin Newsom is slated to visit China to discuss to discuss climate action. Given California's economic stature, a case could be made for such a visit. However, the move still strikes me as unconventional. So, Bill, could you shed any light on the historical context that might explain this California-China collaboration? Are there any historical ties that give weight to this initiative? Well, I mean, certainly California and China have long historical ties predating the People's Republic of China. Uh, I think in more recent history, uh, there has been um, you know, a lot of collaboration on climate technology uh, I think former Governor Jerry Brown has played a big role in that. I think Governor Brown still advises him on climate stuff, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, his One of his advisors, I believe, was worked for John Kerry. And so there's there's a big connection to climate. Obviously, you know, climate is a huge problem and, uh, you know, potentially existential, right? And so it's good that, uh, you know, it's good to be talking about climate. I think that in specifically what, this trip was about and what was supposed to accomplish. That's a harder question. I think certainly from a political perspective, if you're Gavin Newsom, it's part of burnishing your chops as sort of more than a governor, if, if more than a state leader, if your hope is to run for a higher office like president, say right. in 2028. Uh, he went to Israel before this, met with Netanyahu, then he met with Xi Jinping. He's now got more international experience than a lot of fellow governors. Uh, mm-hmm. So to speak, uh, in terms of how this trip came together, this organization took credit for it, this Chinese People Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, um, which is designated by the U.S. State Department as an affiliate of the United Front Work Department. Um, okay. you know, they arranged lots of trips, so it would make sense that they would arrange this trip. I mean, Newsom got, you know, he, he got a lot of access. Obviously, he met with... Um, he met with the vice president. He met with Wang Yi. Then, of course, he had 40 or so minutes with Xi Jinping. Uh, he he went to like the Tesla factory, went to BYD. Uh, he went to the Great Wall. Um, he ran over a kid at a school, right, playing basketball. <laughs> his, I mean, he he did he, his shot week. looked pretty good, I got to say, right. But 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 he so he had he sort of ran the gamut of things. Um, he also said all the right things publicly. I mean, if you're the Chinese side, if you're the group that organized this trip, you were very, very happy with with that trip because oh, yeah. he he really hit all the high notes in terms of the messaging that you're trying to reflect back to America. And one of the things that I think is going on, the messaging after his trip um, was very much this focus on people-to-people, subnational relations. And, and what that comes around to is really... Uh, I think, and I've written about this a bit, is obviously people-to-people stuff is very important. Um, At the same time, I think we should not underestimate that this is a classic united front tactic where the Biden administration is in many ways intransigent. And so the way you deal with a foreign country is you just go around it by going to local municipal state leaders, business leaders, other community leaders, work them Mm-hmm. And then they will pressure, they, they you know, hope that then they will put pressure on the leadership in the other country to push policies that are more uh, in line with what you, China, want. Um, sure. And I think that there, there's certainly, from the Chinese perspective, this wasn't like, oh, Gavin's a great guy. Let's have a fun time with him. This was a very much had, um, I think, a very clear goal, which was you get to know several goals. One is you get to, you actually get to know the person who may run for president in 2028 or depending on speculation you know, sooner. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but also, uh, it's a very good way to work with him or talk to him and then reflect your views back through him into the U.S. system. Mm-hmm. And certainly from what from Newsom's talking points, what he said publicly, again, th- they could not, I don't think, been happier with how he expressed himself publicly in China about the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, I don't love separating people into hawkish and dovish categories and using that binary, but he definitely seemed to be friendlier uh, than any other U.S. leaders who have visited China in in recent months and years. Um, Nathaniel Schur at the Carnegie Endowment, he quote tweeted a video of Newsom and Xi and said, this may be the first time a prominent U.S. official endorsed Xi's principles for the bilateral relationship, translating them as respect mutuality, and benefit for the Commonwealth. Wang Yi lifts his hands at a minute 15 seconds of the video in apparent gratification. 
Um, so, and, and the other thing, just you've been seeing just over the last few months, you've been seeing a real, you know, part of it's coming out of the pandemic, um, but I think part of it is also this fraught state of the U.S.-China relationship at the state-to-state level, um, at the national levels. You've been seeing a real concerted effort on the Chinese side to push people to people at various levels and to pull back, to sort of reach back to organizations or people in history that the Chinese side see as having played a positive role in U.S.-China relations. So you have... Um, repeated interactions around the Flying Tigers group, which was sort of the, the you know the group in World War II that fought against the Japanese. Uh, mm-hmm. you've had, she exchanged letters with uh, members of the group and descendants of Flying Tigers. Just hosted. Uh, I don't think they met with she. At least they, they met with Wang Yi, or they met with the vice president yesterday. A group of Flying Tigers veterans and descendants were in Beijing. Uh, you've had something with the same thing with letters going back and forth with the descendants of General Stilwell, who served in World War II and was working with the KMT, but ultimately was fighting the Japanese. Other groups, it, it's it's part of this broader strategy that they that they use as a united front work where, um, you know, on the one hand, you say, well, people to people is great. We should have people to people. And I do some people to people stuff and that's fine. But on the other hand, you have to recognize that it's it's not it's a like a, they're really nice people. Let's chat with them. It's actually part of a strategy. And so I think you you have to look back. I mean, Mao had this quote from something he wrote, I think, in 1956. So internationally, we must unite with all the forces in the world that can you be, be united. And the idea is you find your friends, you find mm-hmm. people who are friendly, you find groups that are friendly, you work them, you work with them. And then you use them to pressure uh, and to pressure changes to, to make changes in their system that are favorable to the PRC. And so I think that is, and sh- I think that is part of what's going on here. I mean, it's important. People to people stuff is important. It's it's not like a binary. Well, don't do it because maybe it's part of this United Front stuff. And it not always, uh, of course, it's not always is. But I think in this case, given sort of the Newsom trip, who who is taking credit for raising his trip, so the way it went down. I would say that this was the Chinese side has to feel like this was a very successful effort. Oh, absolutely. It's a massive win on the PRC side, uh, particularly given Newsom's ambitions and positioning as a likely heir on the Democratic side. Um, I don't have a strong Gavin Newsom opinion at this point, but I will say it was refreshing to see a leader who's not like 80 years old, the, the vitality in Newsom even as he's bowling over some poor, unsuspecting, uh, privileged <laughs> Chinese child, yes. um, was no, no, nice I mean, it, as it, a change of pace. No. And, and so the question is, you know, I mean, he's clearly a smart person and, um, you know, he, he may be fully aware of all this and it just worked because also, you know, California wants investment. I will say on the climate stuff, again, great they're talking, but I certainly hope he's under no illusion that somehow the Chinese are going to change what they're doing because he came and visited and like they're going to have some cooperation with California. The Chinese are doing what they're doing on climate and on new energy and on green tech for all their own reasons, from problems that climate change is causing in China to basically massive opportunity to develop new markets, not just in China, but globally, but also for energy security. Yeah, well, and on that front, um, as far as clear-eyed recognition of where China stands on climate change, I did want to mention this article from Doomberg, which is one of my other favorite substacks alongside cynicism. So so you said, so green chicken, your son's not a green chicken for Halloween. He's not a green chicken. He's a yellow chicken. Uh, Maybe next year. Green chicken is Doomberg's logo. (laughs) I know. Uh, We'll do a (laughs) Doomberg-themed Halloween. My wife will be extremely weirded out. She's a less avid news consumer than I am. Um, But last week, Doomberg had an article that was headlined Geopolitical Warfare, a great headline. And they write, instead of technology and innovation, cost differences between commodity producers and mature industries are often driven by the answer to one simple question. How much is each party allowed to pollute? Producers who set up shop in jurisdictions with lax pollution enforcement enjoy substantial advantages while those in regions with strong controls grow necessarily less competitive over time. Of course, pollution limits and how strictly they are enforced are nothing more than policy choices. Taken to the extreme, allowing domestic producers to recklessly pollute amounts to a hidden but decisive subsidy that can allow a nation to monopolize strategic industries. No country has perfected this art more than China, as the world discovered yet again earlier this week. And then they link to a Bloomberg story about tightening export controls on the PRC side on graphite, 
and continue to say mining and processing graphite is an especially dirty business and China doesn't mind getting dirty when it can accumulate geopolitical advantages in the process. The global production share chart for graphite is indistinguishable from countless others we have encountered over the decades. If a commodity is deemed critical and producing it is environmentally taxing, China inevitably comes to dominate it. And then they offer some policy prescriptions for the U.S. moving forward. I won't go through everything they recommend, but uh, we'll link it in the show notes. And one thing they write is the first step to solving any problem is admitting you have one. The U.S., by way of example, is overdue for a straightforward admission. It is in an economic war with China, a country that monopolizes a staggering number of the important materials we need and engages in unfair practices that undermine national security in the process. So, Bill, um, I don't have any profound thoughts on what this dynamic means in the larger context of the U.S.-China relationship, but I do think the dynamics surrounding PRC resources and resource extraction and dirty processing, all of it is underappreciated by the mainstream in the United States and even among, I'd say, U.S. policymakers is underappreciated. So I just wanted to highlight that article because it does seem like an important aspect of the strategic considerations. uh, Well, I think certainly in, in parts of the policy apparatus, I think it's very well recognized. And I mean, again, it goes back to the whole Sort of rare earths are not rare, but what's rare is the processing. And then yeah. China, of course, you know, dominates processing of most of them because um, they're willing to bear the economic costs that make them be a, effectively a low cost producer. Whereas Environmental if you costs. To do it, it, well, yeah, but they add into your costs, and so it allows you, you know, if you wanted to do it in a way that was environmentally sort of up to speed of environmental laws in the U.S., for example, you price yourself out of the market, right? Right, and I think we've seen that a couple a couple times with things that have started up and tried to say, "Well, now's our chance because the Chinese dominate this," and then they end up not. Um, it's not economically uh, not, viable. Not e- e- right. So last week, when the Australian Prime Minister Albanese was here, the U.S. and Australia announced. I, forget, I don't have the name in front of me, but an initiative around critical minerals, mm-hmm. um, because uh, you know Australia has a lot, the U.S. has a lot. Uh, Australia uh, again, I think, is trying to figure out how to find sort of part of this broader friendshoring concept, find like-minded partners to process some of these minerals, but find a way to do it that's also, um, it's it's environmentally um, acceptable, but then maybe make it so that there is a, um, may effectively end up having to be subsidized in some way so that there's sort of a, a pricing mechanism that makes it viable, but also affordable enough. Yeah. And I actually think it's perceptive on Doomberg's part to recognize that allowing for unchecked pollution in certain industries where there's strategic value to long-term dominance does amount to you know a government subsidy that gives people strategic advantages over the rest of the competition yeah. around the world. Well, in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. did a lot of pollution in the Cold War and the arms race with the Soviets. I mean, mm. you know, nuclear weapons development, nuclear weapons testing. It's, I mean, there there was periods where was a period where um, the environmental standards were much lower. I think we're all better off that they're much higher. But again, it goes back to this conundrum, which is you still need these critical minerals. Um, and increasingly, you it, it doesn't seem like it's safe or smart to be reliant on uh, One China source. for a lot of these things. And yeah. it's not just the U.S., it's Japan, it's Australia, it's the U.S., it's increasingly Europe. Um, and, and so how do you then, it, again, it goes back to sort of this broader, I think, general trend we have towards deglobalization, which is, you know, in some ways the free market's broken. And so how do you find policy and Affect again, basically subsidies that make it work for these other countries to reduce reliance on China. But then by doing that, of course, you distort the markets. Right. But yeah. they're, they're already distorted by the fact that some countries have environmental standards and some countries have much lower, you know, don't or have much lower standards. Yeah, it comes down to balancing free market principles and yeah. security so. principles. Um, and But that was, no, Duberg, I, I like I like Duberg and I thought that was a good post and it certainly is... Um, this discussion around China and rare earths in particular has been going on for years, and it's it maybe this time it'll 
there'll be more progress made on it. Yeah. And there are definitely, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush and say nobody in government is aware of this. I just think in terms of general, like the contours of the US-China relationship and and what is worth watching and paying close attention to over the next 10 to 15 years, um, I, I think this is an aspect that is just under discussed when people have those conversations. Uh, but the other thing that I wanted to double back to, just to clarify, so Gavin Newsom, it sounds like his trip was arranged by the United Front. Was it paid for by the United Front? No, or no, do we not he, know? I think there's a, I think it was paid for. I forget that there's like a California protocol fund that pays okay. for these trips. That, 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 we don't know who the donors were, but there's no indication it was anything, um, any problems with that. Um, this is just the side on the Chinese side that, and, and again, this organization, they arrange and, and are the host's body for lots of foreign visitors. Right. Um, but it's a strategic arm of the Chinese Communist well, Party. Well, the State Department has, you know, says it's an affiliate of the United Front Work Department. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's just, it's just one of those bodies. This is what they do. And this is, you know, again, they're not just doing these people-to-people exchanges because like, hey, they're nice people. Let's have a good dinner and chat. They obviously see it as in their interest and they see that there's value in receiving people in China and showing them basically shaping how they view the country and who they meet with. Well, it, it casts the trip in a different I mean, light. That's other, me. I mean, again, that, that's not necessarily nefarious. Lots of countries do it or would like to do it. it just, but you just, again, have to understand that there's that element to this visit too. Yeah. Um, well, that's very interesting. I wasn't aware that we were able to connect the dots in terms of who arranged what, uh, but- well, this this organization claim claim credit for it. Maybe it's not true. Maybe they just want to claim credit for it because it was such a successful visit from the Chinese side. But <laughs> yeah, I think it is likely that, that they actually clip. Yeah, it was very successful. Yeah, I think. Although this this poor kid who got run over will probably always always have a you know he'll probably have fast track to uh, visits to California if he wants them. <laughs> That's true. Um, all right. Well, we'll close with an old favorite. Ambassador Rahm Emanuel, uh, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said this past week, as for the remarks of the U.S. ambassador to Japan, it needs to be pointed out that the duty of diplomats is to deepen friendship between countries rather than smear other countries and sow discords. And Rahm, I'll read two different <laughs> tweets from him. Number one, the PRC Foreign Ministry spokesperson lecturing me on sowing discord Nothing like the pot calling the kettle black, two land skirmishes with India, repeated ramming of the Philippines' fishing vessels, shooting five missiles into Japan's EEZ, fighter jets recklessly and unnecessarily close to U.S. aircraft in international airspace. When it comes to sowing discord, the PRC knows what they speak of. And then tweet number two, it's Halloween and the spiders are out. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. <laughs> the PRC's baseless ban bites their own seafood processors as Chinese companies consider closing and moving to Southeast Asia. The PRC embargo aimed at Japan, but hit their own workers. PRC economic stewardship, a sight to behold. Uh do you have any reactions to the latest exploits here? <laughs> well, well, a couple of things. So one, also this week, the um, the the uh, U.S. military announced, and I think uh, Ambassador Emanuel was was instrumental in this, that they're they're now going to be sourcing seafood from Fukushima water. Basically, they're they're trying to take up some of the slack from the lost sales to China over the Fukushima release. Right. On two, you know, APEC is. Less than two weeks away, and he keeps tweeting, which is kind of interesting. I I, we, I thought maybe that the White House would tell him to calm down before a a, a Biden Xi meeting, and so I was far sure that, that would happen. happen. Yeah. Um. You know, again, how the how the meeting goes, it it sounds like it'll be in San Francisco. It won't be back in D.C., so there won't necessarily be a state dinner. But if there's any sort of broader gathering, I may assume Ambassador Emanuel will be in San Francisco for APEC. Uh, so maybe he can get invited to some of the meetings with the Chinese side. That would be interesting. <laughs> Let's mix it up. Maybe live tweet it. Who, who can say what's in store for uh, all of us? But but it, it is, uh, um, he also, uh, he, the Wall Street Journal has a story today where they talked, he was on a Conan O'Brien's podcast and he made some more comments about the missing defense minister. So he just, he just keeps, he just keeps stirring the pot. Yeah, well, I'm glad that he refuses to relent here. And, um, you know, reading the sowing discord tweet, 
One thing that I would add to that is that, and it dovetails with the discussion about the fighter jet earlier, almost every week as I'm planning these shows, there is some incident with a PRC fighter jet recklessly menacing someone. Like a few weeks ago, Canada had a similar thing happen. And it happens so frequently that I don't even treat those incidents as notable anymore, or at least not notable enough to merit no. podcast discussion. Right. But it's all pretty unsettling. So I feel no, like they should not, mention it. They sort of become background noise until something happens. I Two things on that. One, I think, is that we hear more about them because the U.S. government has clearly uh, uh, shifted its policy and is, is being much more assertive in, in uh, publicizing these incidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think that there are... Um, these 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 planes are flying closer to China and more of them, um, and it, it it or at least closer to China. And I think that um, the you know the Chinese are very unhappy about it, even though they're technically staying in international airspace. Uh, and I think the Chinese are um, have decided they're willing to accept more risk okay. to try and prove to the U.S. that these are stupid and that they need to push the U.S. back. Um, you know, if you do baseball, it's like a brushback. Uh, right. pushback pitch but with a lot higher stakes and, and they would argue that we're inviting not we the united states is inviting that sort of reaction well, and, and that's the that's their entire messaging like at this recent defense forum the shangsha i mean all these all their public statements it's the u.s is is raising the risk the u.s is the one who's you know coming to our neighborhood you know we're not flying off california um you know it's it's this whole sort of trying to reshape what international law is around sort of international airspace international um waters mm-hmm. and you know ultimately the u.s is not going to back down uh at least at this point certainly the u.s military is not going to back down unless the white house says let's pull back or let's take a break maybe they'll take a break before see uh, before uh, apec to, to reduce the risk of any sort of, of, of an incident but it, it does look like the two sides are operating in closer and closer proximity and i think the the odds are just seem to be increasing i would i will say the odds look like they're increasing that there's going to be some sort of incident which could be pretty bad right yeah no exactly and it's the the fallout if something like that happened now versus 20 years ago and it was a big deal 20 years ago when stuff like that happened yeah um, and, and the question is is you know on the one hand it's not clear what the u.s is actually getting out of these the flying so close to china um uh, on the other side is, of course, if the U.S. just backs down under Chinese pressure, then that's going to cause, you know, that will not be acceptable from, um, you know, it just it's one of the things that politically isn't acceptable, but then also um, I think will be seen as setting a bad precedent. And so they're sort of stuck in this dance that really could have pretty catastrophic consequences. Right. Well, we're not ending on catastrophic consequences for the podcast. No. So um, final two notes here. Atharv <laughs> says Yao Ming was pretty visible at the Brooklyn Nets home opener last week. Just wanted to update you guys on Yao Watch based on the end of the last podcast. And then I did some digging and found a story from Reuters that the NBA and China have encountered turbulence in their relations over the years. But retired great Yao Ming told Reuters the league is still first class in his home country. I have to say the NBA is in the first class in China because, you know, the players have been exposed in China for so long, Yao said when asked about the past issues between China and the NBA. The players, the teams, all still very welcome in China. So a bit of brighter news. Um, I love seeing Yao Ming, and it turns out he was front and center for opening night, um, despite my pessimism in terms of the NBA and and the, its relationship to China. It's a very sensitive relationship these days, but great to have Yao back in the fold for a couple of days. Uh, yeah, that was, again, there was, a, there was a delegation here last week. This is, again, part of that Sort of what we were talking charm about earlier offenses, about the sort yeah. of people, people to people, charm invention, whatever you want to call it. And so, again, if you took out Taiwan, you took out South China Sea, you took out the flights and the and the sort of close encounters, you could say the U.S.-China relations look like it's it's actually trending um, up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Yao, nobody associated with the NBA has a bad word to say about Yao. Um, he just had a, a great attitude and disposition the entire time he was here. So. It's always nice to have him back. And it's it, the people to people relationships like that. That's what you don't want to have swept up in the ongoing discord and devolving relationships. So um, 
welcome back, Yao. And, uh, you know, big news for the millions and millions of James Harden fans across China. James Harden was traded on Tuesday in D.C. And um, not in D.C. He's going to be in L.A. moving forward. So just something for uh, the PRC to keep tabs on. So new 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 surge in jersey sales potentially. Exactly. New jersey to buy in China and then final note from Mark, he says Andrew and Bill, until you start your own gardening show, you should consider a crossover podcast with Kevin Espiritu at Epic Gardening. Guy has built a gardening empire, a gardening media empire from scratch. Are you familiar with Epic Gardening at all? I am now. Thank you. I had not been before. I will check it out. I mean, you do some epic gardening uh, unofficially over at your house. I, I do watch some folks on YouTube. There are a couple of Substacks I subscribe to. This one, no, I don't know this guy. This, oh, interesting. I will check it out. Looks pretty good. There you go. Well, thank you, Mark. And uh, thank you, Bill. Another terrific episode here. And anybody who's new to the show, you can subscribe to Cynicism and get access to every episode we, we release. You could also subscribe to Stratechery Plus and get access to uh, several different podcasts from me and daily writing from Ben Thompson. Uh, you should really subscribe to both. Both great resources. Um, but Bill, until next week, I hope you have a good Halloween Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. We could end with good old Ram. Uh, but yes, it's always great to see you and give my best to Tashi. I will. Happy Halloween, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.